Yeah, good morning. Great to be with you. Happy Mother's Day weekend. Um, I know that sometimes some of you may feel like, like I'm preaching or talking directly to you. Have you ever felt that from either myself or another preacher that, that, man, they must be stalking me with where this message is hitting me? And if that's where you're at or if that's, that's what you've ever felt before, let me start by saying every time, every single time I prepare and begin a sermon, I'm thinking and praying over this particular church family, people that I know, lives that are going through stuff. So yes, there are aspects of what we talk about as a church and when we unpack the word of God that, that your lives and my life and things that we're going through in very real ways are impacting the message. So yes, that, that can be true. But no, please no, I'm never passive aggressively taking this opportunity with a microphone to address individuals or families or specific situations. Now, don't let this get awkward. No one's ever accused me of that, at least not in a serious way. I've had friends come up to me afterwards and go, wow, that was hitting me right between the eyes. And I said, well, that's, that's the Holy Spirit's job, not mine. But today, I think it's important to say that right off the start, because we're going to talk about something that's common to all of us. And for some of us, it's very, very sensitive and raw. We're going to talk about family, the priority of family. And if that does already make your blood pressure rise a little bit, just know that I think it's important for us to be cautious and sensitive, but bring everything that we got, the good stuff, the hard stuff, all of it to the foot of the cross. So that's what we're going to do today. You, you saw right there, there's, there's a graphic, there's a, a title to kind of what we're talking about today that, that says what's important now. Now, that language actually comes from like a strategic operations process or a personal life plan process or some kind of process that we've actually gone through in a strategic full day way of, of facilitating what we call strat ops. It's a couple of days, two, three days, where as a team, we've gone through as a campus uh, different opportunities to kind of distill what's going on in our midst. What, what is the health of our ministries and our staff and, and our community? And what are the opportunities we have and the challenges we have? And, and after day two, it's fascinating because if you do a three-day process here, like happened to us, our team back in July, you do a three-day process, and after day two, you've kind of been able to talk about a lot of different things, and you put all those thoughts in, in what might be called buckets or categories. And I remember in July when we went through this, uh, we had, at the end of day two, was 14 different buckets, 14 different categories that we said, these are critical, these are important, these, are, these have to be paid attention to. But how many of us know if you have 14 different priorities, you got none? Right? If we have 14 different things that we're saying, this is important, we got to focus on all these things and keep all these plates spinning, you're not going to be able to be very good or exceptionally good at any of them. So the difference between the end of day two and all of day three is, okay, you've got 14 different things that we've distilled are important. Pick two. Pick three. With the unique timing that we have and the opportunities that we have and the team that we have with all the different things those are 14 different things that maybe are true for all kinds of different churches and campuses, but with where we are at, what's important now? And so interestingly, as a teaching team, we've kind of 
branched out uh, from after our series uh, through Ephesians and then Easter and then orphan care. And then we have You Count weekend coming up where we talk about God's heart against the vile scourge of sex trafficking. And then one more standalone weekend before the beginning of June, we get into a sermon series on Psalms called Rock Solid. Really looking forward to that. But right here, kind of in the middle, between Orphan Care and You Count Weekend, we have five weekends that we call standalone weekends. And I've said this before, but standalone weekends are simply weekends that aren't directly connected to any kind of unifying series. But I looked at those five weekends. Week one at this campus, we talked about not missing our chance, sharing and celebrating salvations through baptism. Week two, we talked about choosing your own adventure. What will we choose to spend our lives on? Week three, last week, we talked about reaching the lost and the priority of equipping business people in their engagements in, and functioning 24-7 in their real job, as we talked about, following Jesus with everything that we got. This week, we've, we're talking about the priority of family. And next week, week five, we're talking about students and kids. And if you kind of chart it all out like that, it's interesting to me that as a campus, these are things, the lost, salvation, what are we going to spend our lives on, the priority of family and students and kids, these are things that are uniquely important for us, for you and I right now in this season. So what's important now, this week we're talking about the priority of family, the priority of family. And we might be asking, well, okay, wait, why is that what's important now? Is that, is that more important now than it was a season ago or than it will be in a season from now? Well, in a way, no. Like in a way, obviously many churches, many campuses would say family is a priority because especially where we live in Northern Colorado, we, we live in a demographic that is primarily family oriented. If you think about West Greeley or sorry, uh, yeah, West Greeley or East Fort Collins or Johnstown or Severance or Timnath or Windsor or Eaton, this community, this region that we're in, it's primarily family oriented. Like if we were in a college town, it'd probably be pretty important for us to put a lot of effort and intention and energy towards reaching college students, right? If we were a campus in the middle of a senior center, we probably don't need a rockin' student ministry, okay? We live in a place where when you think about who is around us, what community are we in, what is like the demographic of, of us and our community, it's primarily families. So maybe that's one reason that families is important to us, it's a priority to us, but there's another reason that it's important now. And that is because I think you know, and I know, that in a lot of ways, families are vulnerable right now. Priorities have shifted. Things have shaken up the family dynamic. Families in this church family and beyond this church family in our community are falling apart. And it's terrifying us and it's breaking our hearts. And this is the part that if you feel targeted right now, yes, I know this is specifically a challenge in our midst. No, I'm not targeting any one person, but we gotta talk about it. As a church, we gotta talk about the priority of family. So with that, I wanna carefully and sensitively continue. One of the things we're gonna talk a lot about today is the church as family. 
uh, one of my friends, I'm not sure if she's here at this service or last service. I know she's on campus this weekend. Her name's Linda. She was at a, a summit class with my wife and I a couple of months back. Um, and we start off the class talking about, hey, when we're talking about church, we're not talking about a building or a program. We're talking about people in, in close relationship with one another. We're talking about family. And Linda piped up in, in summit class and said, you know, I have heard the language of church as family more at this campus in this church than I've heard at any church ever before. We talk a lot about that. We want us to understand that's what we're doing here. This isn't a building, it's not a program, it's not primarily a ministry, it's relationships, family. And before we go any further with that, I wanna provide a couple of clarifications because there can be a danger when I say we're talking about a demographic and, and a priority of family, there can be a danger for people like the single individual to think hey, that doesn't apply to me or he's not talking about me. So I was gonna talk about this a little bit later in the message, but it's important right at the onset to say, let's talk about singleness and family. Singleness and family. I don't want the single individual here, single for any reason, to think that this priority of family doesn't apply to or include them. It does. I know all too well, even from my own faults and flaws as a pastor, that we as a church can struggle to talk about singleness as a valid, God-honoring, fully fulfilling lifestyle. And if we're not careful then, and we just talk about families, 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 then the single individual can think, I'm somehow less ideal or less applicable here. Biblically, nothing can be farther from the truth. Let's, let's not waste any time. I want to look at the second most famous single guy in all of history. His name's Paul. He wrote a lot of our New Testament. He actually talked about his view on singleness. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But if they cannot exercise self, sorry, I skipped a couple. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay, if that didn't make you like kind of chuckle a little bit, I think you might be taking the Bible a little bit too stoically. That was funny right there. Because Paul essentially says, look, I think singleness is a great, great thing. I've, I've experienced it. I wish more people could experience it. And then he goes, but for those of you that can't keep your hands to yourselves, okay, I guess marriage is an okay thing for you guys. This is one of the points biblically that specifies that God's intention for sexual relations is under the covenant of marriage. Then even more than the second most famous single guy in the history of the world, let's, let's look at the first most famous single guy in the history of the world. Who do you think that might be? <laughs> I love the church. Just really quickly, Jesus. Yes, Jesus, can we agree that he's the model of what a fulfilled, complete life looks like? So theologically, even, we have to say that, hey, singleness is apparently a very valid, completely whole, godly lifestyle. Now, I don't want to swing the pendulum back the other way and all of a sudden make us think that, well, 
Paul was single, Jesus was single. They're pretty good examples to follow. I think maybe it's even holier or more godly to be single than married. I don't wanna swing the pendulum to the other extreme. I do just wanna present a caution and a check for us, especially in a predominantly family-oriented environment that single people are not lacking any kind of fulfillment. It is a perfectly God-honoring lifestyle. Following the lifestyle of Paul, following the lifestyle of Jesus, I think you're in good company. So this may caution us when we know single individuals and we wanna constantly get them connected to someone else. Like you're not complete yet, let's, let's fix that part of you. You wanna play matchmaker, that's fine. Those are your relationships, but let's have this caution and recognize that singleness, we don't talk about it too often. That's why we're doing that right now, can be a very God-honoring, freeing lifestyle. So that's why I wanna just kind of keep that clarification in front of us. The second clarification I wanna talk about is grandness and family. Made up word there, keeping the, the outline point guessers on their toes again this week. Proverbs 17, verse six, the first part of it says this, grandchildren are the crown of the aged. Now, I doubt many in pe people in here will really appreciate being called aged. There's, there's probably some better terms, but don't blame me, Paul, or sorry, Solomon said it, not me. But both young and old should cherish, cherish the intergenerational relationships that are unique only to grandness, grandchildren, grandparents, and the parents in between. Admittedly, there are some challenges there because you're bringing the complexities of a nuclear or immediate family and, and the changing dynamics of another immediate family and kind of combining those. Oftentimes there's, there's distance that complicates it or, or there's holidays or broader family expectations. And for these complexities, they're all dealt with best individually because they're all unique to every individual family. So it's sufficient to say that, that our perspective of how do we deal with that? Is there a biblical way of dealing with that? The answer would be yes, it's to surround yourself with people that can help you navigate it in a godly way. That's why we do what we do here in the life of the church, connecting to one another. Because we need help figuring out how to navigate the various complexities of relationships. That's where many of you find your teams in prime timers ministries or small groups or interest groups, people that can help you sort through your relationships and what you're facing best. But even with those complexities, it's evident throughout all the history of God's people that the intergenerational relationships is something that is unique and valuable. And the foundation of that should be respect and honor and accepting that there is such richness available in those unique relationships. Okay, with those two clarifications that yes, singleness, that's a part of this. And so is grandness as a part of this. We're gonna talk about the church as family. Last week, when we were talking about our heart, our perspective towards the lost, we read Romans chapter nine, the first few verses of that. And I wanna circle back to that real quick. Romans chapter nine, starting in verse one, Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. 
For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Passionate, convicting heart for the lost, Paul shares here. This week, I wanna focus on who is he talking about? Who's he talking about? He says, my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the faith. He says, my brothers, this can also be translated brothers and sisters. Is Paul here talking about his literal family members exclusively? No, because in the end of verse three and then in verse four and on in the passage, it it clarifies that Paul's talking about his kinsmen according to the flesh, his his non-Christian Jewish friends and family, people that he considered to be so close to him that they were like family. And he says, those are the people that I have such a passion for because I care about them. They're not just those people out there, they're family. They're people I have very close relationships with, so much so that I call them brothers and sisters. In all of Acts, we hear this language of non-blood family, brothers and sisters. Paul uses this quite a lot in his letters in James and Hebrews and Philippians. It's a language of non-blood family. Have you ever talked like that, called someone your brother or your sister that's not actually your brother or your sister? This is, this is actually biblical. It's not just cultural for us. It's not just a fad. This is very biblical. But I, it begs the question from me, what is the difference between just relational closeness with someone and familial language? Is there a difference there? Admittedly for me and for many others, we can use this loosely. I got on the phone the other day with a friend out of Greeley and I found myself picking up the phone just saying, hey brother, how you doing? In fact, we have a a TSM hiring process going on right now and and throughout one of the interviews, in fact, throughout a couple of the interviews, I've been called brother by the candidate and I I love that. That, That's a term of endearment. I'm not sitting there going, I'm not your brother. You're not getting this job. You don't even know who I am. No, it's... It's a familial term of, of affection. And actually, as we're, gonna about, we're about to see in this little mini study we're gonna get into, when we talk like that about one another, it points to something that's kingdom. It points to something that God intends for us as church. If you have your Bibles, we're gonna be in John chapter 19, just two quick verses. If not, it'll be on the screens as well. But in John chapter 19, I wanna paint the picture real quick. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's in his last moments. He's suffering agony. And in these last moments, we have this very interesting encounter in verses 26 through 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. This particular unnamed disciple, it's it's John. It's the author of this particular gospel. And, And Jesus is essentially entrusting the care and the supervision and the responsibility even of his mother to John. Because most scholars believe at this time that Joseph, Jesus's father, Mary's husband, was dead by this time. And so in Jewish tradition, it falls to the eldest Jewish son, the eldest of the family, to be responsible for the care and the future and the protection and the providence 
of his mother. And here Jesus is in his last moments. He's not gonna be able to fulfill that duty anymore. And so he devotes John to his mother in that relationship as an act of devotion to his mother, fulfilling his duty as a son, ensuring that his mother can be provided for. Now it gets a little interesting here because a dying son would generally want to entrust the care of his mother to who? His brothers, the next in line, the next oldest brother in his family. In Jesus's case, that would be James or Jude or one of the other male siblings. But here's where it gets really interesting. The problem is at this point in their relationship with Jesus, they didn't fully embrace him for who he said he was as the Messiah, as the son of God. There's, in other words, this is fascinating. Even Jesus's own brothers, when they were standing before him at the foot of the cross, could not be relied upon by Jesus. Do you think Jesus probably has pretty good decision-making skills? Yeah, if Jesus discerned something or decided something, we can theologically understand it was wise and right. And at the cross, Jesus was not able to yet entrust the care of his mother to his brothers because he cared about his mother in a holistic sense. And I need to ensure mom that you're gonna be cared for by people that are really gonna help you, not just financially, not just in protection, but even spiritually. And honestly, right now, my brothers aren't in that position. He didn't write them off. We'll talk more about that later, but, but his brothers weren't there. Even, check this, this is gonna be relevant for many of us. Even those closest to him weren't there with Jesus. They weren't at that point in relationship with him. So Jesus had to set up this situation where he's entrusting his mom into the care of his beloved disciple, John. She'll care, he'll care for her like she needs right now. Establishing the family of God was at the heart of the ministry of Christ. Through a relationship in Jesus Christ, believers become members of a new family. John chapter one, verse 12. And as Jesus came to the very final moments of his earthly ministry, his words to his mom, woman, behold your son. And to his beloved disciple, John, behold your mother. That paints a profound picture of family forming beyond blood that's united in something different than blood in who Jesus is and what he's done. So according to this little mini study that we're doing here at the foot of the cross, what would we say, back to that question I asked earlier, what's the difference between just relational closeness with somebody and family? What's required to really truly be fulfilling what's needed for family? Well, commitment and strength and intimate presence and knowledge, but also truly understanding someone and accepting them and embracing them. That's where Jesus's own brothers fell short right here. Family, being a part of a family. Now we're gonna take what we learned from that lesson and start to apply it to church's family. Being a part of a family means strength and commitment to one another and devotion and intimate knowledge and deep, profound, personal acceptance and embrace. That's what we find in the family of God. That's what we're supposed to find here in our midst as church, as family. We say it all the time. Church isn't just a building or a service, it's family. 
And some of you may be looking around right now going, no, it's not. (laughs) I look around this room or I think about church as family and there's a whole bunch of people that I don't know. And that's fine if that's where you're at, but please hear me. It's not God's intent that church just gets stuck there. That's why we say time and time again, it is our intention and our priority and our desire for you that church goes way past just something that you attend or participate in and it starts to become relationships that you form. And you're not gonna go from, I know nobody at this church to I'm in a deep, intimate relationship of you know, knowledgeability and acceptance and intimacy. You're not gonna go make that step in a week or even a month. But if you can understand that that's our desire for you to find here at Timberline relationships of acceptance and strength and support and intimate knowledge and embrace, that's why we do what we do in connections. We want to have these relationships that are formed, these incubators that allow over time stories to develop of first they were just people that I met in a Bible study or met in an interest group, but, but man, over time they became like family to me. Ephesians 2, 19, Paul says this, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. When we talk about the church as family, it's soaked, it's saturated in the gospel. Because we all at one point were strangers, we're set apart. If that's what for you church is like, that's fine. We've all been there where church and being a part of the family of God looks more like being strangers with other people. But this is where we see that it's not God's intent that we stay there or get stuck there. We were all wayward. We were all unfamiliar. But because of what Jesus has done, we can be united in something. We can be stronger. We can be accepted just as we are. We can be embraced. I hope you never ever hear a message from me or anyone for that matter that doesn't highlight, look to, point to the gospel as an opportunity and invitation where we can see that that as we're talking about the priority of family, we all at one point were wayward, we're distant from God, but because of what Jesus did on the cross and in the resurrection, we're all not only sought and pursued right where we are, We're invited into the family of God. We all have that invitation. No one, no one needs to walk around saying, I'm not a part of a family. This invitation to be a part of the family of God is universal and unconditional, extended to all of us. In fact, any time you call someone else a brother or a sister in Christ, I think it's kind of a nod or a highlight or a spotlight that glorifies the work of God. Because anytime I say, hey, brother, hey, sister, and, and, and we're kind of relying on, I know they're not my literal brother or sister, but, but they're my brother or sister in Christ. We're pointing to the gospel. We're saying that's what we're united under. And that's how the church is as family. Like I said, we find this in the life, 
specifically here in our connections with one another. It may not happen immediately. And if you're saying, well, I joined a connection group maybe a week or two ago and I haven't felt that familial connection, I understand it takes time. And honestly, you're getting in a group of imperfect people. And so sometimes it takes time to even find the connection that's that way with you. But, but I'm telling you in the big picture, this is where it happens. Our connections, our small groups, our study groups, our interest groups, that's where the incubator of church's family lies for us. So as far as immediate family goes, earlier we talked a little bit about singleness as a part of this and grandness as a part of this. But because this is important, as I said earlier, because so many of us know that in our church family and in our community, families are falling apart, immediate families relationships that should be closer than anything are breaking apart. Now we're gonna talk about what are the non-optionals in those relationships? What are the priorities? Ephesians chapter five, verse 22, all the way through chapter six, verse four. We, we talked about that at the end of our series on Ephesians a couple of months back. But in case you weren't here for that or don't memorize every sermon that's ever given, um, we'll kind of highlight it. We'll, we'll circle back because Paul talks about in this section how the family is supposed to be like the hub of all of our relationships. What I mean by that is if we're ever supposed to act in a certain way towards other people, it's supposed to be especially true in these relationships with our spouses and with our children. If we're ever supposed to be sacrificial and generous and grace-filled with other people, then we're especially supposed to be that way in our marriages, and in our parenting. Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Give yourself up in constant service towards one another. Kids, show respect to your parents and listen to them. Parents, bring your children up in the discipline and the wisdom of God. Those are some of the non-optionals that we're all commanded to have in our immediate families. There's another one in a letter uh, called 1 Timothy. Chapter five, verse eight, listen to this one. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Sounds pretty harsh, right? That's harsh, harsh language right there. When, when Paul talks here about providing for your family, it's not just financially, providing all things that your family's gonna need, care, support, strength, protection, love, affection, service. Anyone that denies that says, I'm not gonna do that with my family and I'm definitely not gonna do that with my immediate family. Paul says, whoa, that's way out of bounds. He uses this language that he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now that sounds harsh, that is harsh. But here's the crazy thing. I think the bar right there is actually pretty low. The reason I think that is we see this in even the animal realm, the animal world. Even animals will provide and take care of the needs of those in their immediate family. Even unbelievers provide for the needs of their own. Paul's point here is that it is how God intends the family unit to work for us to be primarily caring for one another. Your immediate family is your priority. In the church world, we say, your immediate family is your primary ministry. It's what should be getting your best efforts and devotion 
and energy. Biblically speaking, our priorities should go, God is first, our spouses are second, and kids, if we have them, they are third. Don't mess with or rearrange that order. Your kids need your marriage to be a top priority for you. And I know some of us can go, man, sometimes I, I really feel endearing emotions towards my kids more than I do my spouse. And we can be in a culture that even may value kids ahead of our marriages. But if that's the case, if that's where you're at, if you feel more inclined towards your kids than you do your spouse, let me just tell you that what your kids need most from you then is God to be your first priority and a strong God-honoring marriage to be your second. That's what they need from you. The strength of your relationship with Jesus is supposed to like cascade overflow into your marriage. And then that's supposed to get so full with your energy and investment that it then overflows into your children and so on. And I will be the first to tell you that, that my wife and my kids are here, so they're gonna hold me to this. And I can be flawed in this because I have a great job and, and work with a great team and have great relationships. And I'm telling you, there can be times, seasons even, where you look at my life and my other priorities, four, five, six on that list, they get more of my time and my energy and my care and my intention than my top three priorities do. I need you to hold me accountable to that as pastor and vice versa. Jesus is our top priority forever and always. And if you're married, your spouse, they get your second best effort. They're your most important relationship with another person in our lives aside from God. And then from that come children if you have them. And then from that, so on. Biblically, families are a priority. They should be getting our very best. But what happens when that's messed up a little bit? What happens when we're not perfect? What happens maybe even when those priorities have been out of whack for a very long time? This is where I understand I gotta tread very carefully because for me, for my own life and for you, this is a sensitive and raw thing that we're talking about. But I wanna, again, look to Jesus see that he not only understands that families can be jacked up and that there can be dysfunction, he not only understands that, like sees what's going on in your life, he felt it. And because we can see him struggling through a dysfunctional family, we can see how we can struggle well. I want you to recall that Jesus's very own brothers, and in other developments, we see it was more than just his brothers. It was his whole family. They struggled with who he said he was and what he said he was doing. Jesus's own family, God himself, when he came, he had a dysfunctional family. Things weren't going right. So much so that even at the culmination of everything he lived to do and say and teach, even at that point on the cross, he couldn't entrust the care of his mom to his brothers. Talk about messed up family dynamics. God himself. This is the Virgin Mary, guys. This is, this is brothers that, that lived a life with Jesus that they firsthand witnessed miracles. They lived in a house where they could never rightfully say that, well, Jesus was in the wrong on this conflict. 
They directly received the love and the care and the wisdom from God incarnate, God made man. And even with that kind of cheat sheet or grading on a curve or whatever you wanna call that, even with that at the foot of the cross, there was still dysfunction. I point that out because I want you to see that, man, if God himself couldn't avoid family conflict, we won't be able to either. If the perfect model of a human being couldn't avoid messed up family dynamics, the struggle is going to be there for all of us. So how do we struggle well then? By doing family things. And no, I don't mean family things as in doing things together as a family. That's probably going to be a part of it. But I mean doing things that are unique and specific to our family. The Mel family has family things. I'm going to let you in on a couple of them that I even witnessed and was a part of this morning. Part of being a part of the Mel family, if you're, you're ever in our house for 48 or 72 hours, you'd see that, that we're a little quirky. Some of you are going, I don't find that hard to believe. <laughs> We can be a little quirky, made up names for one another, songs with weird lyrics. And, and it's just, I don't know, it's just part of the Mel family thing. That's a family thing of being a Mel. Another is, is we go on dates, one-on-one -on -one dates, me and Kay, Kay and the kids, me and the kids individually. We go on dates with one another. That's, that's just a family thing that we do. So that's what I mean by family things. It's, it's unique and, and special to us. You need to know if you are a part of this family, this is what that looks like. So how we can learn to struggle well in our family dynamics is what are the family things of God? What's part of our DNA? Here are three examples of family things of God, and they can even help us in our struggles to struggle well. First is part of this family, what it means to be a part of this family. We, we practice patient grace, long-suffering love self-giving devotion to one another, even when it's not deserved. That's what we do. And, and this grace, patient grace, it's not just forgiveness. It's not just we forgive one another when things go wrong. No, grace is we forgive one another and we extend one another favor when it's not deserved. That's what Jesus did with his brothers. He didn't write them off when throughout the course of his ministry and his life, he said, you know what? You guys have not accepted me in my message. He didn't write them off and burn that bridge. There were consequences. So extending, please hear me on this, extending patient grace to one another doesn't mean there are never consequences for decisions. In the case with Jesus and his family, there were consequences. The consequences were at the cross, he had to entrust the care of his mother to someone else. That's a consequence. But Jesus didn't ever burn that bridge with his brothers. He allowed space for them to know his love for them. So much so that later after the resurrection, later in their lives, James and Jude came to accept Jesus for all that he said and did and was. So for us, especially in our relationships, the closest relationships in our lives, practice patient grace. We both need it. Refusing to extend grace in a family is like poking holes in a lifeboat that we're both in. We both need that. Don't refuse to extend patient grace. Patient grace is a family thing of God, and it'll help us struggle well. 
Second family thing of God, lean on the broader church family. Man, when things aren't going right with those closest to you, it can be incredibly hard. Jesus' own brothers not accepting him is incredibly tough. So he had another resource to lean to, his broader family, the family of united in the kingdom. He leaned on John. So if you're somebody that your family dynamics because of consequences or, or decisions that are made, it's all messed up and filled with conflict, lean on the broader church family. This can be, should be, must be church as family for one another. That's a family thing of God can help us struggle well. Last one, devotion to our Father. Being devoted to God our Father is a family thing. Jesus kept priority number one, number one. And in case any of this just sounded like, hey, in our families, we need to do better and have higher priorities, it's not. And this is what tells us it's not. I can only love Kay and my kids like God has called me to, not out of willpower, but because that's how God first loved me. I'm supposed to receive that and dwell in that and allow that to overflow into my relationships with them and them with me. We look to our father and we say, God, you love me in this way. That allows me to love others in this way. So before we lean into a time of prayer, we're gonna have some music playing here. I wanna just offer some space because maybe for you, this is space where you're inspired or encouraged in what family means. Maybe for you, this is space for you to lean into the broader family and say, I, I want more of those relationships, more closeness, more intimacy. I, I want people to know me on a deeper level. Maybe that's what you're gonna pray about or how God's gonna move on your heart. Maybe this is space for healing because for you, family is very raw. Maybe it's space for conviction. Are my priorities Jesus, spouse, kids, like God has intended? So we're gonna have this space and I want you to allow the spirit to use it. And in a few minutes, I'm gonna close this time in prayer. and seen just as we are, you're the only one that can fulfill that perfectly. And then from there, you intend that your church, the people that follow you in immediate families or not, represent that in relationship to one another. God, I pray for conviction where that's needed. I pray for those of us that need to say, am I really giving family my top priority? 
Am I really loving others with the patient grace that I have received? Am I known and knowing others in this church family to support them when they need it? God, if this needs to be a time where you're speaking and moving on our hearts, I pray that you would do that as only you can. And I pray for the person that needs to be pursued in this moment by your love, maybe for the first time, that they would say, I was distant, I was angry at God, I was upset at God, but, but I'm hearing about this God that, that knows me and loves me right as I am and accepts me there and has invited me to be a part of his family. God, if you're doing that work on anybody's heart, would you stir and awaken draw in hearts far from you. Do the miracle of speaking life into dry bones. And lastly, God, I pray that we would be a group of people that accept one another and see one another and care for one another and are committed to one another. In a world that is so filled with arguments and divisiveness, maybe this is a solution. We're united in something that cannot be broken. The love of the Father. Part of the kingdom household. We thank you for that. We celebrate you for that. And we ask you to do that in our midst and through us.